Morning. Is that working all right? Good. Um, well, I would say that was uh, helpfully similar to what I was going to say without stepping on my toes too much. It was just a, a good reflection of hopefully where I'm going this morning. So hopefully the, the words of the worships um, prepared us well. Um, we're looking at 1 Samuel 7 this morning. We'll skip through a few chapters, but we'll, we'll kind of cover that a little bit. Uh, verses 2 to 17. So if you want to turn there, I've got a little spiel before we read it um, to put some context on it. But um, today's passage brings us to uh, a preparation uh, for a battle. Now, it might be a, a, a man thing, I don't know, but I always think stories of great leaders in wars and battles can be some of the most inspiring stories and definitely sort of capture my attention when you sort of um, go looking at history. There's just something fascinating about those moments in history when it's all going wrong and everything's on the line and then up steps a strong and confident leader to stand up and you know, write their name into history. And uh, so the most familiar example I could think of was Churchill and his wartime courage and grit and um, how much he's become the subject of countless books today. And I'm sure it's the, the character, it's the, um, the resilience of being willing to fight on against all the odds that keeps that sort of legend going. And our passage today um, speaks of a, a desperate moment in Israel's history. Uh, the people are, are fighting against the odds. They're very much backs to the wall. And um, they've already been humiliated in battle once. And they need somebody, you would think, a Churchill-type figure to come to the fore and rally the army to war to declare that they're going to fight the Philistines on every patch of land and sea until victory's won. And you were going to find today that the people of Israel do experience a victory. But I'm sorry to say that it has nothing to do with the charisma and inspirational nature of their leader, Samuel. Um, he doesn't ride out into battle in a, a blaze of glory today. He doesn't write his name at the ancient legends. Um, he doesn't even give an almighty speech and send the generals off to do it for him and lead the way. We're going to say something very different. And it might be on the surface one of those moments in 21st century life when we struggle to, to apply it at first, um, especially when we're trying to draw out what's needed in a leader of God's people today, which is the, the focus of our studies. And especially when in Silksworth, it's unlikely that our uh, new pastor in future is going to need to lead us into battle. Um, or at least I, I would expect, hope not. It certainly wasn't in the description that we put out for responsibilities and duties. Um, however, and it is a big however, the, the richness and the, the depth of scripture really does speak here once we dive into the heart of Samuel. Once we see his spiritual leadership, um, it's incredible to see God's response in power. So I thought it was very important before reading the passage to, to flick through chapters four to six. You're welcome to follow it um, <clears throat> and trace it through quickly. I'm not going to read it all, obviously, but I'll summarize um, as we've skipped over those to focus on the leadership of Samuel rather than the narrative here. So as we go into the book of Samuel, as we've heard already, Israel's had the chaos of the book of Judges um, in this period of history. It's a time of everybody doing what they think is right in their own eyes. And it doesn't turn out well. Um, as we know, Judges is full of selfish and wicked behaviour. And the whole nation is just in moral turmoil. But even in this chaos, uh, God is working out his purposes in history. And Samuel, as we'll see, rises up to become a great spiritual leader. And so we're currently in his journey. Now, in chapters four to six, the Philistines gather against Israel. As if you know your Old Testament, you'll see they, they do that quite a bit. And um, Israel's been roundly ignoring God's call on them for, as a nation for some time now. And so he allows the Philistines victory in battle. 
And let's remember that at this point in the Old Testament, God's covenant with his people, um, the Israelites were promised physical blessings and physical curses depending on their heart and their response to him. And while that covenant's not effective for the church today, seeing Israel's rebellion and seeing how God um, physically um, changes the course of their history as a result gives us a picture of the spiritual experiences and battles we might face too. So after Israel's rebellion defeat in battle follows. But not deterred by that defeat, the foolish Israelites, knowing the promises of God to them and knowing that God is mighty, decide that it's time to march the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. And surely with the Ark of the Covenant on their side, God is going to perform and they'll win. A secret weapon for them, a bit of a trump card that they can play um, when you're in a spot of bother. Perhaps they were thinking, ha, we've kept God in his box for, uh, for a long time. We've never listened to any of the things he had to say. But now that we need a magic trick or a genie, we'll see what he makes of the Philistines. But um, thanks to their arrogance, surprise, surprise, Israel's routed in battle again. And what's worse, this time the Philistines take the ark for themselves and put it in the temple of their own God. And in chapters five to six, skipping through them quickly, we trace the ark's journey. The false god of the, the temple the Philistines put it in is broken and the Philistines are hit with panic and a series of plagues. And amazingly, through all of this, both Israel and the Philistines learned that God was in control the whole time. He defeated the Philistines anywhere without any help from Israel whatsoever. And at the end of this, the Philistines don't want the ark anymore. And so they send it back to Israel um, on a cart. So what's the importance of the context of that? Why was it important, I think, to go through it? Well, what Israel should have learned um, just before the passage today is that God is not their trophy uh, to be paraded and played uh, like a trump card in battle. God opposed the pride of the Philistines, but he also opposed the pride of his own covenant people as well. And Israel must remain humble and obedient if they want to experience the blessings of God that they've been promised. So he is hoping that in our passage today, a real leader is going to come forward and hammer that message home. So let's read 1 Samuel 7, and I'm going to read from verse 1, but our main focus is essentially 2 to 17. It says this. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths, and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. 
While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her, and Israel delivered the neighbouring territory from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also judged Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we um, look into the passage. Father God, I thank you for... um, just the, the way that this series has opened our eyes, Lord, to what as we as a church should be looking for in spiritual leadership. Uh, thank you for the way the passage has spoken to me in preparation and the, um, the great challenge that there is to be found in this uh, passage as we look at Samuel's example. And I pray, Lord, that um, as we look to it, Lord, you'd be glorified in this place, Lord, by the hearing of your word, by the changing of hearts, and ask that um, you would speak to us clearly through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as, um, as you know, our focus at the moment is looking for a leader and sort of make it as clear as possible what we can take from today's passage. Every point this morning starts with a leader, I say every, there's two main ones, and emphasises what a godly leader should do. So let me emphasise at this point, it's not uh, generic leadership skills. Um, it's not the kind of work training day information you might get and how you become a leader. At least I really hope it doesn't descend into that kind of trivial chat like smile or be nice or something like that um this is spiritual leadership we're seeking for our church and for us as individuals and we need to put ourselves humbly into the shoes of these clueless and prone to wonder israelites for a moment and remember that at times in life and um, we're all in need of um, strong spiritual guidance and leadership and samuel will notice set a, a high bar here so we'll follow the example piece by piece through two main things we can be searching for and the first main thing to look at is that a true leader, well, a leader, sorry, a spiritual leader, calls for true repentance. And kind of the key verse for that is, return to the Lord with all of your heart, in verses 2 to 6. So the people are gathered here in verse 2, and we're told that they turned back to the Lord first, first of all, they turned back to the Lord. And my initial thought raising it was that if the passage said nothing more about their repentance we might be quite satisfied with that. We might be quite satisfied with that wording. The people have pursued other gods. They've been guilty of chasing after these Baals and Ashtoreths and other um, gods around them. They've been guilty of assuming that God was theirs to command in battle. And ultimately, they rejected God's authority over their lives. But here, in verse 2, they turned back to the Lord. And Samuel has this congregation in front of him. And as a leader, he can see that there's some fairly genuine remorse for what's happened. The people, at least with their lips, have turned up here and they're seeing the right things. It's things perhaps like, you know, today we might say, oh, I've made a mistake. They might say, oh, we really want to turn this situation around. Perhaps they've seen, you know, we need to return to the Lord. 
And I don't know <clears throat> about Samuel's reaction, but if most church leaders heard that today, what would our reaction be? How delighted would we be if people came and said something like that? If we're a Christian who's looking out for a friend who maybe is struggling at the minute and they say those kind of words, how great does it sound to us to know that somebody's thinking like that? It sounds like they're in the right place. And I know that personally, I've been on the receiving end of comfort in spiritual struggles before from friends and, and, um, and shared them. And there's nothing wrong in and of itself with being encouraged when a believer says that they want to draw near to God in their life once again. And perhaps Samuel could have been pleased with that too. And he could have moved forward and he could have said, great, sorted, let's move on together. But in this case, as it turns out, the wise thing to do is to hold the people accountable for what they're seeing and ensure that they're sincere. How much worse is it going to be for Israel if they profess with their lips that they turn to the Lord and yet change nothing? And so here's verse three. So what Samuel says, if you return to the Lord with all your heart and rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Notice Samuel's not unkind to the people. He doesn't dismiss their repentance. He doesn't suggest that he doesn't believe them. He's not trying to catch them out. But he does hold them account, uh, to account for what they've said. He calls them to be truly repentant by calling them to action and show that their faith here is genuine. If the people are ready to turn to the Lord with all their hearts, then you can be sure that the fruit of that has got to follow them. And it's an illustration that rings right through scripture if you search for it. God calls us to see our sin first of all, see our depravity and our great need before him. But once we repent, the outpouring of thankfulness for God's deliverance and love should cause us to live differently. Here's the words of Paul in Colossians to see the fruit uh, God desires from his people. Colossians 1, 9 to 14, if you want to turn there. So I'm just going to take a small drink. If you want to turn there anyway, Colossians 1, 9 to 14, I'm going to read that was right this morning. That's what Paul says. <clears throat> for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And at first glance, I think that's an overwhelming amount of things that Paul is praying for there. We're called as believers to live a life worthy of the Lord, to bear fruit, grow in the knowledge of God, and always give thanks to the Father for rescuing us from darkness and into Jesus' kingdom. So the spiritual leader then is not just there to give a message of repentance, but to call us to turn to the Lord with all our hearts. A spiritual leader will hold us to true repentance and be willing to tell the truth. How easy is it when someone appears to be thinking about a sin issue? Is it for us just to simply encourage them and trust that they'll sort things out in their own time and space? How much harder is it for us to be truthful with one another, to give godly wisdom to struggling brothers and sisters in Christ? How much harder is it for a spiritual leader to be able to tell someone, if you're going to return to the Lord, make sure it's with your whole heart. What are you going to do next? 
I would find that uncomfortable here in a struggle, but I do find it an awful lot more uncomfortable to say to somebody as well. And if you want a spiritual leader, they need to love God's people enough to tell them the truth. They need to be able to take Jesus' warning, warning sorry, at his words in John 15 when Jesus said this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are thrown up, thrown into the fire and burnt. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. A leader knows what true repentance is like and it's a life that's bearing fruit. So put yourself in Samuel's shoes at this moment in time. He knows the Philistines are coming. He knows that if Israel truly returns to the Lord and repents, that God has promised to be faithful to his people and he will act. And so Samuel, he can't afford for the people to say sorry half-heartedly with idols still sat in their houses. As a spiritual leader, the loving thing to do really is not just to tell them, oh, it's all right. It's to tell the people to put their, uh, well, walk the walk after talking the talk to clean up their homes and accordingly in verse 4 the people go home and they clear out their idols and they go further than that in verses 5 and 6 which is a, a couple of verses took us a while to get my head round um, because having called the people together at Mizpah Samuel intercedes in prayer for the people and in the meantime the people do this curious thing of drawing up water from the well and pouring it out before the Lord as well as fasting it's a simple and unusual gesture but it's a physical sign of what they're trying to show spiritually. And commentaries um, vary only slightly on what this shows, but essentially it portrays an understanding on the part of the people that they're emptied out and they're in desperate need. And something very similar is pictured in Lamentations 2, 18 and 19, which says this, the hearts of the people cry out to the Lord, you walls of daughter Zion, let your tears flow day, uh, like a river, sorry, day and night. Give yourself no relief Arise, no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. And so the pouring out of water in our passage just emphasizes the outpouring of confession and remorse. And hence it's accompanied by their confession, we've sinned against the Lord. So a heart like this has given itself no relief, its eyes no rest, a heart poured out before God. It's a heart ready to let go, finally, of the sin and the pride that so easily enslaves us. It's a nice sound. It's a new one. So I couldn't have noticed that. <clears throat> These repentant hearts um, are about to see something very special, showing them that God hears the cry of a sinner that's in need of him. And I've no doubt when Samuel saw these things, the depth of their repentance, the depth of their confession, that his heart was lifted and encouraged, that God's message had truly cut the people to the heart and that they were ready to be listened, uh, to, sorry, ready to listen and ready to change. So let that be our first example this morning. Are we looking for a spiritual leader here who is willing to see God's word cut us to the heart? We mustn't be tempted to look for the friendliest leader, somebody who's a natural manager or something like that, a good man manager, but a truthful man who leads by example and calls others to give their whole heart um, to the Lord. And so at this point, I'll turn to the second point this morning of what we can look for in a spiritual leader. As a leader reveals the living God in verses 7 to 12 in particular. 
Now, it seems like an obvious point. A leader reveals the living God. Um, well, of course, a spiritual leader is going to show us what God is like. I want to make it clear uh, why Samuel's actions and wisdom really shine through here in the way that he reveals God's love and his justice. Verses 7 to 12 are where the really exciting events happen in the passage. So look at verse 7. It says, When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Philistines heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Now this time, when the Philistines go on the attack, there's no arrogant parading from Israel. They now know that God is not their magic trick like we talked about. Instead, they're crying out to God for mercy. Now consider the other side of the battle for a minute. Because they saw, um, obviously, what was happening. And it changed to what they were thinking their plans were. And consider their advance, the Philistine side. Now, last time when the ark came out, we were actually told that they were afraid at first. They thought that God was, well, they basically thought Israel was right about him. They thought at first, here comes some kind of power that we should be afraid of. Here comes Israel's God. Perhaps they knew his stories. I don't know of Israel's history. Perhaps they understood um, that God was mighty and God could act. And last time they were um, really surprised when they won the battle anyway. This time, they look at Israel and they're completely unprepared. In fact, the enemy are already crying and look weaker than ever before. And so the Philistines engaged in this battle because they saw the people getting together and interpreted their repentance as weakness. And they were right. Ultimately, Israel is weak. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant on shore. And they seem to have lost this belief that God is theirs to command. So far as the Philistines are concerned, now's the time to press the advantage it makes perfect sense to them. If we beat them when they had the ark, how much easier is it going to be to beat this lot when they haven't got it? However, everyone on both sides is about to hear and see God's heart for broken and repentant sinners. Everyone's going to see a physical demonstration of what would later be expressed in Proverbs 3.34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Samuel how does he reveal the living God through his response in verse 9? Well, I was kind of wondering whether it's Samuel's knowledge or whether he's led by the Spirit or perhaps both. But in this moment, he chooses to present the sacrifice of a lamb. Perhaps the people were waiting for a speech. Perhaps they were waiting for a rallying call. Maybe they thought Samuel was going to draw a sword up in the air and shout something about you know, fighting for the nation and patriotism. But no, he gets on with something that in human terms is completely unhelpful for striking fear into the heart of the enemy or stirring up courage in his own troops. Because this is the moment that he takes a poor lamb, not just any lamb, but a tiny, young, suckling lamb for a sacrifice. I won't go into a long explanation of the sacrificial system, but keep in mind that as part of God's covenant with Israel, and the people will ritually offer, animal, ritually offer animal sacrifice like this to show outwardly their repentance and need for forgiveness from the Lord for their sin. The sacrificial system had that deep significance in testing the obedience and the heart of Israel, and it pointed ahead to a much greater plan of salvation that God had promised. And uh, as we look at Samuel, now a little lamb in the passage here, a young suckling lamb is probably the most innocent creature you could possibly think of it's the epitome of innocence really a young lamb with no crime uh, never hurt anybody is offered here 
Why was it offered at this exact moment? Why did Samuel graphically pour out its blood and burn it in front of the people? As the people watching on could see that because of their sin, this was the justice that they deserved. God's judgment should fall on them at this moment in time for what they've done. And do you know what? Here's the Philistines. The executioners are there ready to carry out that judgment for their pride and their rebellion against the living God. The blood of the lamb that's poured out by Samuel should be the blood of Israel poured out by the Philistines. And if God is just, and if he takes their right and wrong actions seriously, he can't just watch on while Israel rebels and live morally bankrupt lives and do nothing about it. Their corruption, their greed and their selfishness has to come at a cost. Otherwise, God really doesn't care about right and wrong at all. He can't put Israel, this guilty criminal, on the dock and say, wasn't that bad though, was it really? Go on, off you go on, carry on living how you like. We wouldn't accept that in a court of law today. That wouldn't be right. But Samuel, he trusts in God to deliver the people in spite of what they deserve. And this beautiful, innocent lamb is the embodiment of God taking away the punishment that the people deserve and laying it on another. Seeing their repentant hearts like we've discussed at length, God is prepared to act, but the people are going to have to see both his love for them and in this lamb they're going to see his requirement for justice as well. And I've said often that the Old Testament gives us physical pictures of the spiritual truths that we uh, know as believers today. But John 1, 29, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when we find ourselves helpless before a holy God, when we find ourselves facing up to our, his justice, deserving the judgment for our own spiritual, from our own spiritual Philistine army, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you don't need, I'm sure, the, to be stated explicitly this beautiful parallel to who Jesus is. So our Lamb of God can't even be compared to the suckling Lamb of our passage today. He's not a mere innocent creature. He's the perfect, sinless King of Kings come to dwell with us and suffer an agonising death on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. It makes us uncomfortable to think of Samuel spilling the blood of this cute little lamb at Mizpah, but it should utterly break our heart that the blood of the Lamb of God was spilled on my account. It's overwhelmingly horrific that men could take the spotless Son of God and nail into a wooden cross because of our sin. And yet, this is the living God. This is the will of God that humble hearts would receive this King as their own Saviour. And while Samuel was still busy with the sacrifice, the living God answered his prayers. Samuel is described as a mighty man of prayer and the battle is won as soon as we hear that the Lord answered him in this moment. What did God send to his people when they approached him in their darkest hour? God sent a leader who led them to him in the true spirit of repentance and faith. And the Lord answered them with a loud thunder. The Lord answered by sending their enemies into a mass panic and routing them. And in this moment, Israel's learned the kind of nation that they needed to be. Not a proud nation with God on a banner, but a humble nation who knew their place before a holy God. And we need spiritual leaders who show us the kind of people that we need to be before the living God. This outcome is exactly what they'd hoped for the last time when they wheeled the ark out into battle. They were hoping for thunder and confusion and victory. 
What was missing that time? The difference is simple, isn't it? The leader has shown the people a heart that God will accept. It's not a heart that's perfect. It's not a heart that's mighty, but one that trembles before him in reverence and fear. A heart that understands humbly its great need of a God who saves, not a God that is at our beck and call. And um, as it's spoken in the New Testament, when I am weak, then I am strong. And note that Samuel's not a great leader. He's not a great leader because he's a military genius. He's not a genius, sorry, he's not a Churchill. He's not a great leader because the Lord is more mighty. Sorry, he is a great leader because the Lord is more mighty than anyone. And Samuel followed behind him and knew him. A spiritual leader revealed the living God and will always keep our hearts and our minds fixed on, fixed on who Jesus is. And so as a way of a, a conclusion, as we've cut through the events of the main events of the chapter there and pulled out those big moments where Samuel shows spiritual leadership. Um, but I don't want to discount the details we pick up in the final verses of the passage, which I do think are also significant. So the conclusion is to look at Samuel's continued example from there, really. Verses 13 to the end. We see in verses 13 to 14 the event outcome, really, of the events we've looked at this morning which leads to peace eventually between Israel and their neighbours. And the Philistines are subdued and they uh, clear off for a bit. And verses 15 to 17 says this. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Now this morning we've seen Samuel act under pressure. We've seen him be bold and faithful in the crucial moment by turning the people back to God with all of their hearts. And he revealed the living nature of God uh, to the people. But this little conclusion just kind of sweeps us away from the drama of the battle. And, uh, and puts us in ordinary day-to-day -day life after that of peacetime. And you can contrast what we've seen in the book of Judges at the end of the passage with what we see from Samuel. Instead of chaos and moral sliding back and forth, we see consistency in his example. Instead of leaderless people doing what's right in their own eyes, we see a spiritual leader traveling on a circuit to provide the people with stability in their lives. Instead of a battle warrior rising to the moment and winning glory for a day, we see a leader who humbly continued to serve all the days of his life. And there's a Many examples, isn't there, in scripture and in secular history of leaders who were the person, the right person for the right time. Just looking again at Churchill, who rose to the occasion of the war and then was voted out in 1945. He was the man for the moment, wasn't he? But he wasn't persuading everybody that he was the man for the new world. But Samuel was the man for the moment and also a man who ran his race well. He was a man who ran long and hard and faithfully, as our passage says, year to year, and all the days of his life. And um, that definitely doesn't mean that everything stayed perfect. And as we'll say in chapter 8, Samuel's sons cause a bit of bother. And there's no doubt some lessons to be learned there. But we're looking for a spiritual leader here. And uh, discerning the man who not only speaks and presents well. But also has the heart to lead God's people faithfully over years of service. And that's perhaps the most difficult challenge when you uh, look for someone and in a short period of time. In 1 Timothy 3, where we have the description of qualities required for elders in the church, Paul says, and we've looked at this already, he must not be a recent convert or he may be conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. 
And that's not saying not to trust folks who are new to the faith, but rather if we're looking for a spiritual leader, look for a man who has some evident fruit and some yards behind him in their race. Trace their steps if you can and see year to year how they follow Christ's example with their own walk. And I hope that as a short summary of those final verses, we can squeeze out a couple of valuable lessons there for our own journey as a church. Let me summarize as we close. We need a leader who's willing at times to call us back to true repentance and cut us to the heart with scripture, even though they know it'll make us uncomfortable and make them uncomfortable. We won't always like it. We'll need a leader who reveals the living God, not only sharing God's love with us and our community, but reminding us of how just God is and keeping us focused on Jesus. Just like Samuel with that lamb revealed God's grace, we want to be a shining light for our community and need a leader who can be bold and faithful in that. And finally, we're looking for a faithful leader who over time will grow in their own devotion and love of Jesus, a leader who rises to those big occasions, but who also faithfully shepherds his people in times of peace as well. And so the encouragement is to devote ourselves to prayer ahead of next week uh, with Chris's visit and ask for God's leading as we close. Let's pray. I thank you for the example in the passage there and um, again, just how a piece of scripture that can on the surface seem like just not ordinary narrative, Lord, when all your word speaks, but narrative and, and battles and things that happen in the Old Testament, Lord. At first, the, the true message can sometimes not leap out at us, but I thank you, Lord, the, the depths and the richness of scripture, Lord, the threads of history that run through and point us to Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't uh, miss these things, Lord, as we turn to your word. Pray, Lord, as we... Um, Continue our search, Lord, as we invite Chris next week to speak to us, Lord, that you would speak through him, Lord, that you'd encourage us and challenge us, Lord, as a plain reading of your scripture speaks. But I pray, Lord, that you'd make us discerning, Lord, and, um, and just prepare us, Lord, in the week. Help us to be prayerful and uh, devoted to seeking your will for us as a church in the coming weeks and months ahead. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.